You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning. Hello, how are you guys doing? Did you worship well this morning? I was proud of Alex and the team for leading us. They didn't need me up there. Uh, my name is Greg Carter. I'm the worship pastor here. Uh, but today I get to teach as we continue the series called Camping in the Parables. Now, I have to tell you, I struggled to find my parable. I had a tough time. You know, I was scheduled for this date. This date was approaching, and I spent all my time reading all the parables of the Bible. I listened to the commentary. I listened to sermons. I read books about the parables, and I couldn't find it. You know, I would spend time with the Good Samaritan, and I'd say, are you my parable? I can't tell. Kind of feel, are you the parable I'm supposed to spend all my time thinking about for the next few months? I would spend some time with the prodigal son and say the same thing. Are you my parable? I don't know. How do I know? And I finally found it after weeks of searching. It's in Luke chapter 7. It's called The Two Debtors. And it's a parable about infinite forgiveness and endless grace and unconditional love and extravagant worship. But the whole time I was searching, I realized, I remembered that I already have a favorite parable, and it's not from the Bible. It's a non-biblical parable about these fish. So I heard, I heard this parable about 10 years ago, and I've thought about it maybe once a week ever since. It's simple, but all these layers keep revealing themselves as time goes on. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start off with this fish parable, this non-biblical fish parable. That's first. And then I'm going to transition into the Luke 7 parable. And these are going to be kind of interwoven. And I'm hoping by the end, these two parables will work together in a way that will give us new eyes to see the infinite ocean of grace that we're swimming in. So let's start with the fish parable. On the screen, here it is. There are these two young fish swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming, swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the heck is water? What the heck is water? This is a parable about awareness. It's a parable about having eyes to see the layers of reality that we find ourselves in. For me, this parable invites me to look around with full awareness. It challenges me to be open to shift my perspective, to reshape and reframe my understanding of the world, to look beyond my social conditioning, look beyond my default settings. And this parable sparks my imagination to ask questions. Right? It makes me want to ask questions like, what happened to that older fish? Why does he know about water and the other fish don't? Why is he aware of water? Did something happen to him? Did he, did he have a traumatic experience? Did he see something? You know, and I play it out in my mind. I play out the scenario. You know, maybe one day he's swimming along and he drifts away from the rest of his school into uncharted regions that he was told not to explore. And he's swimming along and he sees some food up towards the surface, and it looks good, smells good. He can't take his eyes off it. It has a slight hypnotic wiggling motion to it. He swims up to it, 
takes a bite. And before he can savor the moment, before he can enjoy his snack, he feels the slight tug on the inside of his mouth. He doesn't even feel the pain at first, but suddenly what feels like a thousand pounds of pressure starts pulling him up. It feels like his face is going to be ripped off and separated from the rest of his body, so he frantically swims to keep up with the unknown force that is pulling him up. He eventually reaches the surface where his world meets the unknown. He's pulled up out of his environment into a new, mysterious, scary environment. And he notices he can't breathe. His, ox, his gills gasp for, for oxygen. Panic immediately sets in. He's scooped up in a net, pulled up on the boat, and these human hands grab a hold of him. These hands smell of worms and dirt, grease and oil stains in the cracks of the fingers, dirt in the fingernails. These hands hold him tightly with a lack of compassion and with impossible strength. And he struggles and he tries to wiggle loose, but he's losing energy. He's losing oxygen. He's losing hope. He starts to give up. He stops wiggling. And right as he's about to lose consciousness, they remove that sharp, stabby thing from the inside of his mouth, which hurts worse than when they put it in. He sees the bright flash of a camera, and then he's released. He feels himself flying through the air and then splashing down into the water. And the water feels amazing. His gills take in some oxygen. He takes a deep breath. He didn't even notice it before. The wonder, the awe, the beauty, the life-giving source of water. And he now sees his world through a different lens, a different filter. He has new eyes. And he's like, I may have some scars. I may have some pain. I may have some PTSD from this experience. I'm just so grateful. I'm thankful. I'm alive. I'm aware. And he wants to go tell the other fish about it. He wants to reveal the mystery and unveil the open secret of their existence. But they're not going to understand. They haven't seen what he's seen. They haven't experienced what he's experienced. They don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Right, they may hear his words, but they're not going to perceive it or understand it. And so one day, he's swimming along, and he sees these two young fish swimming in the opposite direction. And instead of forcing his long testimony on them, and instead of lecturing them about the philosophy of water, he just asked them a simple but multilayered, thought-provoking question, and that is, Hey, boys, how's the water? And maybe, just maybe, this will cause them to think and reflect and ask questions and maybe set them on course to become aware and to see with fresh eyes and to appreciate water and all that water is to them. Jesus says this is why he teaches in parables because some people don't have eyes to see and some people don't have ears to hear. In Matthew 13 on the screen, 
Jesus says, though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Right? These people don't see what is right in front of them. They have eyes, they have ears, but they can't see what's right in front of them. They can't hear the message. Maybe their view is obstructed by self-righteousness and pride or by legalism. For whatever reason, they can't see the Savior that's right in front of them or hear his message. And so he preaches, he teaches in parables. And so he teaches in parables so that maybe we and the people around him in that context will ask questions and think and reflect and maybe set on, be set on course to eventually see with fresh eyes, to see through the lens of the gospel and to see through the filter of the kingdom of heaven. So let's take a look at a parable of Jesus. Let's switch, let's shift focus over to Luke chapter 7. Here is the parable from the Bible. Now this parable is called the two debtors, and it is tucked right within the story, this known story, well-known story of a sinful woman who invites herself to a party. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She has an emotional breakdown. There's tears. She kisses the feet of Jesus. She pours perfume. It's awkward. People are judging her. Everybody's looking to Jesus to see what he's going to do. And what does he do? He tells a parable. So let's set this up. Uh, in verse 36, it says, When one of the Pharisees, named Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You know, so right before this, Jesus was preaching all these great sermons. He was healing people. He was ministering to people. All eyes are on him. People are watching him. And the Pharisees are starting to watch him. And right before this, in the previous chapter, the Pharisees are actually starting to challenge him. And they're starting to accuse him. They're trying to entrap him. And so I think this is why Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to the party. He's going to observe him and hope to accuse and entrap him. You know, because the Pharisees, they didn't have eyes to see who Jesus was. They saw through the filter of legalism. They were keepers of the law. They knew their Bible. They knew all the footnotes of the Bible. They knew the Hebrew. They knew all the washing and the cleansings. They knew the, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They kept the Sabbath. They knew what was was protocol and appropriate and what was proper and kosher. They loved the word and they loved God and they loved church. But eventually this devolved into self-righteousness and pride and judgment. And they judged sinners. They didn't associate with sinners. They were seen as superior to sinners. And here comes, in this story, here comes a sinful woman. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. The sinful woman. We don't know her name. She's not given a name in this story, but there's some rumors about her. She has a reputation. She's a sinner. She's a woman of the streets. She's a woman of the city. She's immoral. She's the bottom rung of society. She's the lowest of lows. She's a sinner. She must have heard of Jesus preach about forgiveness. She must have heard him teach about grace and love. You know, Jesus was teaching that God loves sinners, and then he would actually go and interact 
and love sinners. And so she's so moved, for whatever reason, she had eyes to see, and she gravitates towards Jesus. Her faith propels her forward. Next verse, verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. This was 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. This is a dinner party with a bunch of men, self-righteous, judgmental men. This sinful woman with a bad reputation crashes the party, sees Jesus, throws herself at his feet, has an emotional breakdown. She starts weeping. It's uncontrollable. It just starts flowing out. She starts crying, tears pouring down, tears of shame, tears of regret, tears of remorse, but tears of hope, tears of worship. These are holy tears, and they're flowing down on his feet, making a mess. There's a puddle of tears on his feet, and so she takes her hair. She lets down her hair out of her bun, which this is inappropriate in this culture and this time. This was immoral, inappropriate for a woman to let down her hair, but she does. She doesn't care what's, about, what, what's appropriate She takes her hair and she wipes the feet of Jesus. She's there to worship. She kisses his feet. She's there to worship. She takes her expensive alabaster jar of perfume. This was most likely the most expensive, costly, valuable thing that she owned. And she takes it and she pours the whole thing on his feet. She doesn't sprinkle it not just a couple drops. She pours the whole thing on his feet. This is extravagant worship. And the whole time, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisees and the other men in the room, they're watching this with judgmental eyes. Hostility is brewing. This is inappropriate. This is over the top. This is too much. This is awkward. This is bizarre. Think about how uncomfortable this is. I wonder, have you ever been around someone who worships so extravagantly, so intimate and raw that it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Right, have you? Have you ever experienced an expression of worship that made you think something like, calm down, doesn't take all that? A little too much, over the top, a little awkward, I'm uncomfortable now. That's what's happening here. I have this, this story. I, I led worship at another church, and this new girl joins the team. It's her first week singing, and she jumps right in. First week at the church, first week on team. And she has this divine powerhouse of a voice, and she's so expressive with her movement. Hands in the air, she bowed. Every inch of her was a response of praise. The song of her heart came out through her voice and through every fiber of her being. Her body expressed the surrender and the love and the worship that she was singing. And it was amazing. It was great. It was extravagant. But that week, later that week, a pastor came into my office, one of the pastors at the church, and he closed the door and he sat down. 
And he said, yeah, that new girl can sing, has a great voice, but we need to work with her on her stage presence. We need to calm her down a bit. Right, this is not what he was used to. This was not according to his denominational conditioning. This was not protocol. This was over the top. This made him uncomfortable. So we need to calm her down, work on her stage presence. And I had to make a decision right there, and it was easy, that I was never going to put any kind of limitation on how someone worshipped. I was never going to judge or regulate or limit or confine the praise of anybody. And I actually encouraged it. And besides, how can we judge how someone worships if we don't know their story, if we don't know what they've been through? A lot of times, if you know what they've been through, the way they worship makes all the sense in the world. How can we put any judgment on their worship if we don't know their story? You know, this reminds me, one of my favorite times of leading worship here at this church was at a Celebrate Recovery 24-hour event. How many of you were there for that? Yeah. Friday night. All these stories, all these testimonies of lives that have been changed, lives that have been transformed, made new. You know, it's like you're hearing these stories of people who have walked through hell on earth. Some of these people I've seen, the dark and dingy, grimy underbelly of the most ugly and unholy facets of humanity. Some of them have gone down that downward spiral, that cycle of sin and shame and guilt and hiding and isolation and emptiness and hopelessness. They feel so far away from God. They at a certain point, they feel too dirty, too broken, too unlovable, beyond forgiveness. And then in their story, they come into the presence of a Savior who says that God loves sinners. And the Savior would actually interact with sinners and loved. He did love sinners, and he forgave sinners. And in their story, they are transformed, they are made new, they are forgiven. Wave after wave of grace covers their sin. They are transformed. And as a response, the natural response is to live a life of worship, to worship extravagantly. Sometimes that means to pour out whatever it is that's in your alabaster jar, to pour out your old life at the feet of Jesus. And we actually heard one of these stories on Thursday night at Celebrate Recovery. Were you guys there for that? We heard one of these stories. I love those stories that remind us what we're swimming in. I love those stories that remind us that we're swimming in an infinite ocean of grace and love and forgiveness. And that makes me wonder about the, the backstory of the woman from Luke chapter 7. You know, what happened to that sinful woman? Why is she in that place? Why is she a woman on the street? My mind kind of plays it out. You know, maybe she was married young, had a hardworking husband, had three kids. And right as her life is getting started, her husband dies. She has three kids, no money, no job, no husband. She fears she could, her and her kids are going to be homeless begging for scraps, exposed to the heat, sleeping in the cold. She's overcome with grief 
and mourning, but she needs to keep pushing forward. She needs to keep surviving. And the only thing that overcomes her grief is that maternal instinct to take care of your kids. All right, I got to take care of these kids. I'll do anything. And so in this time, she's searching. She's searching for answers, searching for love and compassion. She needs money. And she finds herself drifting, drifting into uncharted regions, pulled into a sinful lifestyle, pulled into the day-to-day activity of being a woman of the city. And she does things she thought she would never do. You know, no little girl says that she wants to grow up to be an immoral, sinful woman of the city, caught up in a sinful life. Just like no fish says he wants to be caught up in the net of a fishing boat. But here she is. The hands of the lifestyle have their grip around her. She's gone through the downward spiral, the cycle of sin and guilt and shame and hopelessness and emptiness. She feels too dirty, too broken, too unlovable, too far gone, too far away from God. It's like God has enough grace for a little bit of sin, but what I've done, I'm going to need an infinite amount of grace and forgiveness. And then Jesus comes along. And he's preaching, he's teaching that God loves sinners. And she's never actually seen a religious person say that God loves sinners and then go and see them interact with sinners and love sinners. And she's blown away, she's overwhelmed. She's so moved, she gravitates towards Jesus. Her faith propels her forward. And she takes her alabaster jar, this expensive perfume, it's said to be worth about a year's salary. She probably used it for her profession, you know, the calling card of being a woman of the streets. She takes that and she pours it all out. She pours it all out. She doesn't just sprinkle it, not just a couple of drops. She pours it all out in the feet of Jesus, which represents her old life being poured out. You know, and she's transformed in his presence. She sees herself differently. She sees the world around her differently. And she's extravagantly worshiping And Simon the Pharisee is watching all this, right? They're still in the room, judgmental eyes watching. And Simon says to himself, he says, if Jesus was a prophet, if this man really was a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman anywhere near her. You know, we don't associate with sinners. He would know that she's a sinful woman of the streets, and he would want nothing to do with her. And Jesus must have known what he was thinking Jesus responds. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he tells him a parable. So here's the parable. Jesus says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that, Simon? Right, so there's two people, they both owe money. One owes a lot of money, the other owes a little bit of money. They're both forgiven. Which one of those people do you think is more grateful? Which one loves more? Which one worships more extravagantly? You know, in this parable, debt represents sin. You know, and the woman had a lot of sin, 
sin of the flesh. Everybody knew it. She had a reputation. They all knew it. She had a lot of sin, but she was aware of it. She was aware of how broken she was and how much in need of a Savior she was. But Simon, the Pharisee, probably had just as much sin, but he wasn't aware of it. It was sin of the spirit, inner sin, sin of being self-righteous and judgmental, pride and ego, and not loving others. He wasn't aware of his sin. He thought his sin was little. Both are forgiven. Which one of those two people do you think would love more, would be more thankful, more grateful, and worship more extravagantly? Simon answers the next verse. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. That's correct. The one with the bigger debt, the more sin would be more grateful, would love more, would be more thankful. And then Jesus, the next verse, verse 44, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Right, do you see this woman who's making a mess on the floor? Her eyes are all puffy and red. She's crying. She's pouring perfume all over the place. Yeah, of course Simon sees her. He sees her physically. His eyes are working. But it's more like, Simon, do you actually see her? Do you see beneath the surface? Do you see beneath the reputation? Do you see beyond her sin? Do you see through the lens of God's redeeming love and forgiveness and grace? Do you see that she has value? Do you see that she's important? Do you see her humanity? Do you see her soul? And the answer is no. Simon sees a sinner where he should have saw a soul. Simon's looking through the lens of self-righteousness and pride and legalism. But Jesus, when he looks into the eyes of that woman, he does look through the eyes, through the lens, through the filter of God's redeeming love and forgiveness and grace. He sees through the lens of the kingdom of heaven. And he looks to the woman and he tells her these three things. Jesus says to the woman, the first thing, your sins are forgiven. Right? You thought you were too far gone. You thought you were too dirty, too broken, unforgivable. You thought you needed an infinite amount of grace and forgiveness. And Jesus says, I bring that. Your sins are forgiven. Second thing he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. It is your faith. It's not your works. There's nothing you could have done. It's not the oil, it's not the tears, not the perfume. There's no legalistic religious activity. There's no Bible verses you can memorize. It is your faith that has saved you. And finally, the third thing he tells the woman, he says, go in peace. Jesus gives this woman peace. This woman was probably tormented by her sin and guilt and shame, overweighed under the pressure of her sin and guilt. And Jesus gives her the peace that transcends all understanding. And here's how I picture it. I picture this woman, before this moment, she probably walked around with a posture of shame around other religious people. Have you ever seen someone walk around with a posture of shame? This is the outward expression of the the burden of sin that they carry. Their their eyes go down, they look down, they kind of bury themselves into their chest. It's like they're trying to hide, no eye contact. I imagine she walked around with a posture of shame before this, and it's like here Jesus is saying, he's saying, lift your head. 
right? He's saying, lift your head. You are so loved. You are so valued. You're so important. You're not defined by your sin. You're not, you're not categorized by your past life. You're the righteousness of God. You are wonderfully made. And yeah, you've been through a process. You're washed clean. You're made new. Wave after wave of forgiveness. There's so much grace for you. You're swimming in an infinite ocean of grace. In a bottomless sea of unending love. It's wave after wave of forgiveness. And it's like here he's saying, let it wash over you and let your soul find peace. The point of this parable is that when we are fully aware of the magnitude of our sin and brokenness, and when we are fully aware of his grace to forgive, the natural response is to worship. It's to worship extravagantly. Right? When we're aware of our sin and aware of the ocean of grace that we're swimming in, the natural response is to worship and to love. And this is the kind of worship, it is beyond a song. This is not just the worship of music. This is the kind of worship that transcends a church building. It transcends an order of service. It transcends a worship set. It transcends this moment that we have together. This is a kind of worship in which every part of your life is poured out as a response to his grace. This is a kind of worship where the whole of your life is an offering of praise, a sacrifice of praise. So I'll end with this question. If you think about your life as an offering of praise, as an offering of worship, have you just been kind of sprinkling it out Have you just been letting drops out here and there? Or have you been pouring it out over and over again? Every part of your life poured out. And I would ask too, what is it that you need to leave at the feet of Jesus? What are those things that are getting in the way? What are those things that are obstructing your view What are those things that are preventing you from living a life of worship? What are those things that have a hold of you? Those things that have a grip on you? What are those things that you're holding on to? When we fully realize, when we are fully aware, when we have eyes to see the vast expanse of infinite ocean of grace and forgiveness and love that we're swimming in, the natural response is to worship and not just in song, but with the whole of our life poured out as an offering of praise, as a response to his grace. As we take communion, we remember, we are reminded of a Savior who said that God loves sinners And then we are reminded that we are the sinners, that we are broken, that we are in need of a Savior. And we pull ourselves into an awareness of his infinite faithfulness and his endless grace and his unconditional love and all that was accomplished on the cross. And as a response, we live a life of worship through communion, through song, and through every part of our life poured out at the feet of Jesus.
So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's remember him. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that we would be so aware that we would cultivate an awareness for just how much we need you, for how broken we are. I pray that we would be fully aware of your grace, your forgiveness, and your love, that we are swimming in an infinite ocean of grace and love and forgiveness. And as a response, I pray that we'd be a people who would worship extravagantly, not just in song, not just with music, but with every part of our life, all our brokenness, all our sin, all our imperfections, sin of the past, sin of the present. We pour it all at your feet. We give you all our affection, all our devotion, or we worship you with every part of our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.